you to never underestimate the importance of really having conviction in your mission. Because people are going to tell you no all day long. That conviction that keeps you focused on the goal gives you the strength to pull through when things are, are tough. And there are going to be many valleys, unfortunately, probably in the startup world, more valleys than peace. So you got to really believe in your mission and you got to get people, investors, employees, doctors, payers, you got to get them to believe in it too. Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Lloyd Diamond, CEO of Pixium Vision. Lloyd's tenure in both European and American markets, as well as his experiences with large strategics and promising startups, have equipped him with a unique entrepreneurial viewpoint. His current company, Pixium, is developing a groundbreaking retinal implant system that brings hope to patients suffering from advanced, dry-aged macular degeneration. Here are a few of the key insights that Lloyd shared in our conversation. First, in the unpredictable world of startups, an agile and lean team that can wear multiple hats is a priceless asset. Tapping into academic ecosystems is one way for cost-effective R&D and talent discovery. Second, to survive the stressful process of earning regulatory approval, acknowledge its complexity, anticipate delays, and consider the reimbursement landscape early on. Third, fundraising is more than just securing capital. It's about cultivating relationships with investors that align with your vision. Treat capital raising as a unique opportunity rather than a tedious necessity. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we just released the latest edition of MedSider Mentors Volume 3, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Jim Persley, CEO of Hinge Health, Carol Burns, CEO of Cajun Vascular, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups in the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Nadine Yared, CEO of CVRX, Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, Mr. Lloyd Diamond, welcome to MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Really looking forward to the conversation. We had a little fun uh, fun chat before the hitting the record button. So this should be uh, an engaging discussion to, to say the least. So um, w- with that said, I recorded kind of a, a very brief bio uh, on your background at the outset of this episode. Uh, let's start there without, I guess, getting too far into the weeds, you know, going line by line, I guess, you know, with all of your experiences, provide maybe a, you know, a, a, a few minute kind of overview of your career leading up to uh, your, your CEO role at Pixium. Sure. So, you know, when I graduated from grad school, it seems like a century ago, you probably hear that all the time. <laughs> um, you wouldn't know my lack of gray hair, but nonetheless, I moved out to Europe, actually. This was back in the early 90s when the European Union was just kind of starting to, to really form um, and, and, and come together. And I 
did some consulting work for non-European uh, life science companies that were interested in in kind of penetrating the new European Union markets. Um, so I kind of started there and I got to meet some really cool technology companies, some large life science companies as well. And then, you know, over time, I migrated back to the U.S. Um, where I started working in uh, for large med tech, biotech companies. I started my career early on with Bristol-Myers Squibb, and then I worked for Zimmer, the large ortho company, and then ConMed, Linvitech. And then eventually I migrated out west to Silicon Valley, where I got kind of my first taste of this, the real startup world, right? Um, people, you know, coming from conservative East Coast and European kind of life science, heading out to the West Coast where people went to work in like Birkenstocks and shorts and they had purple hair and it, I'm not exaggerating, but uh, <laughs> quite the culture shock for this boy from New York. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 I then started getting involved with really cool companies like uh, Kaifon and uh, Laserscope. And these were companies that were really disrupting the med tech space with different types of technologies and, and, and got to commercialize those technologies and then eventually sell the companies to much larger consolidators like Medtronic and American Medical Systems, which eventually was acquired from Boston Scientific. So did that for a while and then came back to Europe and uh, and worked for a pre-commercial startup that we took public um, on the Swedish stock exchange in the orthopedic space. And then eventually kind of made my way uh, to Pixia, where I've been now the CEO since uh, 2019. Totally different company setup. You know, we're a publicly listed company on the French stock exchange. So that's kind of been an interesting ride. Uh, but the technology itself is is just awesome. Like it, it's worth every minute of banging your head against the wall, trying not to manage a, a small micro cap publicly traded company in Europe, put it that way. That's great. So tons of experiences along the way. Uh, I think that's a super helpful um, um, overview of it. And I'm sure we'll get into some of these, uh, you know, th this this journey in a little bit more detail. But um, let's learn a little bit more about Pixium first, right? So you guys are working on some some pretty groundbreaking technology. Give us a kind of an overview of of uh, of what you're what you're doing and what you're building, and maybe tell us a little bit about the origin origin story uh, and you know, sort of how this technology came to be. Sure. So when you think about Pixium, I want you to kind of think about um, a med tech meets deep tech, and I'll explain kind of why that is and what it is that we do. But basically, we have this uh, retinal implant. It's like a solar panel that we surgically insert in the retinal space for patients that have lost vision due to advanced dry age-related macular degeneration, so dry AMD. Not the wet form, but the dry form. And the reason I kind of say it's med tech meets deep tech is because the, the implant itself is a neurostimulative device. So if you think about deep brain stimulation, pain management, or Parkinson's, we apply a similar concept to the eye, right? And so... Um, but the implant's only part of the story. So the implant needs a whole system for it to work. So the deep tech aspect of this is um, once we do the surgical implantation of this really small microchip, I mean, it's two millimeters by two millimeters, it's thinner than a human hair. Once we kind of insert it in the retina, we need to now make it work. So the way that we make it work is we, we have our patients wear these intelligent or smart glasses, similar to like Google Glass, but our own. And we use augmented reality to sort of create the visual experience for the patient. So we put these glasses on them, a camera on the glasses will capture the image, it will simplify the image and send it to this processor pocket computer that the patient um, has on them. The pocket computer will simplify that image and then convert it into light and it will then project through the 
pupil onto the implant in the retina, the image that we've created for the patient. And then, so once the implant kind of captures that image, it will then convert the image into an electrical signal, which is sent to the visual cortex of the brain, where the patient will perceive the image that we've created for them. Wow. So, wow. I, so it's kind of, it's, it's, I mean, I know, right. It's people say, oh, it's like Star Trek or science fiction. Yes. Except it's here. It's not, yeah. I mean, it's a reality, right? We've, we've already implanted 50 patients between us and Europe. We have published clinical data, you know? So, so, I mean, it's not science fiction. This, this is working. Yeah. The other point that I would mention, um, the listeners might find interesting is you asked about the origins, right? So, um, so, so the origins really um, started back in 2011, but this is really kind of a, a collaboration between Stanford University and the Vision Institute in France. So it's really a multinational trans-border collaboration, right? But in 2011, the company was started out of the Vision Institute by José Alan Sale, and José Sale is a, a very well-known ophthalmologist. He's currently the chief of ophthalmology at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center but he also has academic appointments in France. He's French, or, you know, or originally. And, uh, and he and a co-founder, a serial entrepreneur by the name of Bernard Genie back in 2011 started Pixium. And the mission was to find a technology solution for blindness, right? There's been a lot done in the drug space. There's been a lot of work done in gene therapies and optogenetics and all that. But in device solutions for vision restoration, they're really is there wasn't a lot done back then, and there still isn't a lot done now. So they started the company, and then, um, and then in 2014, the company went public on the French stock exchange. And uh, just before that, they entered into an agreement with Stanford by where they in licensed and acquired the retinal implant technology from Stanford. And so today, Pixium has the worldwide rights for the current generation and all future generations of uh, the Prima implant. Yeah, so really cool tech. Oh, amazing, uh, amazing. This, this is like one of the things where it's like I, you know, sometimes, you, you know, med tech can be super complicated, right? And it's slow and, you know, the regulatory landscape can be difficult to navigate, et cetera. But like hearing like stories of uh, technologies that are being developed, right? Like Pixium, it just reminds me of like, this is this is why I, I stay in, in med tech, right? I mean, this is like really, really cool stuff. It's not like you're developing some new, you know, cool gadget that, you know, helps you know, someone look better. It's a fashion statement or whatever. I mean, this is like real stuff that is like really life-changing. So that's that's awesome. And I'm looking at the website now, but for everyone listening, I highly, highly encourage you to check out Pixium's um, site and learn a little bit more about this tech. It's it's really, really cool. It's Pixium-Vision. So P-I-X-I-U-M uh, hyphen or, or dash vision.com. So Pixium-Vision.com. That's the site and you can uh, you can go learn a little bit more. Um, super complex. And pretty amazing, right? I mean, this implant, as you said, is like is you said it's two millimeters by two millimeters. I mean, that's incredible. And the te- and the tech is is like most of the R and D work done in France, then I presume, correct? Yeah. So all the deep tech stuff, so the stuff outside the body, glasses, camera, algorithms, artificial intelligence, all the stuff that drives the system, we develop in France, and then we still have a very close uh, development collaboration with Stanford. So all of the research work is done at Stanford on the implant. Um, the preclinical work, and then we take it, we manage through all of the patent processes and then all the animal testing if needed and then clinical trials and then into commercial launch. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool, cool. Um, 
I want to leave enough time to kind of go back um, and, and get your thoughts on some different functional aspects of the world of medtech startups, because you, you've got a ton of experiences. But before we do that, give us a, a kind of a high level overview of kind of where the company's at in terms of its life cycle. You mentioned, I think you're you're in 50 patients by now, but you know, if you can kind of wrap or give us an additional context to kind of uh, where, where, where you guys are at now, that'd be helpful. Sure. So our real clinical story and human clinical story started back in 2018. Um, we have three ongoing trials right now. So we have one, which was our first trial in Europe, which uh, we're now coming up on five years post-implantation of those patients. That's what I mentioned earlier, sort of the publications. So we have five publications around various aspects of the outcomes associated with those patients around safety and efficacy and all of that. One cool, I will say though, one cool fact, and, and this is the subject of one of the publications, which was the first ever is, you know, we, we deal with older patients, right? So the average age of implantation might be around 72 years of age. And so one question that a lot of the clinicians and neurobiologists and experts had was, you know, in an older patient, would they be able to combine sort of the prosthetic vision, right? Because they lose their central vision in dry AMB. That's the vision we restore, but they maintain peripheral vision. So most of these people can like walk around. They just can't see what's in front of them. They can't read. They can't facial expression. So the question was, can they combine both? Can you create like a prosthetic vision in their sensual vision and then have them combine it with their peripheral vision? And, and, and we've demonstrated we can, like that was the first ever, like the first right. ever of this kind. So, so I just kind of mentioned that as an aside, that's another cool aspect of the tech, but um, yeah, so, so that's one trial that's uh, ongoing. And now, like I said, we're coming 60 months post implantation of those patients. Um, then we have a, a, a feasibility study in the U.S. that's ongoing as well. Um, and we've implanted patients all in Pittsburgh. And so we're following up with those patients. And then probably the bigger news is that we are now in the observational phase of our pubital study in Europe. So the, we call it the Primavera study. We have a lot of Italians working for us in France, so they <laughs> named it the Primavera clinical trial. Um, and and that study was is 38 patients, and we've implanted all of them. And now we're just waiting for the data. So, um, so, so, so we're a late stage, late clinical stage company, I'd say. Got it. In Europe, we will not do any further trials. This will be our definitive trial for CE mark approval. And then in the U.S., um, in addition to the this early study, um, we have received breakthrough device designation from the FDA. And so now we're going to accelerate to our final trial in in Europe. Excuse me, just for I mean in the U.S. Yeah. So so breakthrough device designation um, is that was great that the company got that. And so now we're in in diligence, you know, with the FDA to to come to a, a conclusion on the final final pivotal work we'll do in the U.S. Okay. Cool. Cool. So kind of on the on the um kind of in on the early stages of really really seeing this, you know, uh, technology sort of co come to light in the form of pivotal trials and. Eventual, eventual commercialization. Yeah, that, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's awesome. If it's okay with you, and and, and again, um, uh, we'll link to the website pixium-vision.com and the in the full article write up on on MedSider. We'll also link to to Lloyd's LinkedIn profile as well. But let's let's use maybe the next twenty minutes or so to kind of you know go back in time and learn a little bit more about your experiences because you you got kind of a, a both a deep and broad. Um, level of, of of domain expertise across you know a lot of different medtech medtech startups and so starting maybe let's maybe start with um like the early stages of uh, of a company right 
which can be extremely challenging. You're 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 oftentimes trying to iterate quickly on alpha and beta prototypes, but you don't have a lot of capital. So, you know, with, with when you think about that that stage of a company, and I know you sit on the boards of a lot of startups as well, what's your typical advice, right, for other other entrepreneurs that are in that stage, you know, trying to do a lot with, you know, a little? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to say probably two things stand out, Scott. First is you got to remain lean. And I know that sounds kind of cliche. I mean, everybody says do more with less. But when you're a startup early, early stage, you, you just got to remain lean, but it's demanding. So you need people that kind of can wear several hats. So what I found is useful is you got to find those talented people. And there are a lot of smart people out there um, that are multidisciplinary, that can do, you know, that that understand the science, but are able to communicate it in a succinct way. Um, they're not afraid to clean the kitchen up, you know, when you're having coffee. I mean, like that. that that's the kind of thing. I, I mean, that, that to keep it real, that that's really the kind of type of people that you need that roll their sleeves up. And you know what I find, and not to diverge much, but that that's probably the one most important piece of advice. But what I find is the kind of younger generation now. I don't know where we are, Gen Z or Gen whatever. I don't even know what we call them. <laughs> that's kind of harder. It's harder to find those people. You know, there's this. I want the instant gratification and I, I kind of want to do things the way I want to do it. And I don't want to do things I don't want to have to do. That's hard in a startup. You need people that are just multidisciplinary. So that's the first thing. And in addition, the resource has to go far. So, you know, stay close to your universities. That's extra resource you can leverage. And, and that's a that's good value for time investment, right? Universities have people they are always looking to do research, put PhDs to work, use the university setting to really hone and prove scientifically what it is, you're, you know, the tech that you're trying to bring forward. So I'd say that's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is find the one or two investors early on, friends, family, seed, I don't care what you call it, a group of investors, angels that really believe in your mission and whom you can count on when things get tough. And I don't even mean financially only, but some of these people are are really smart. They have a lot of experience in investing in a lot of different early stage companies, and they have a lot of collective wisdom. Find the one or two and lean on them when times get tough. Mm. That's such good advice. That your your last comment, you know, reminds me of. I mean, it certainly resonates with me, right? I've got like a, a couple people that sort of. The, the scars are very real, right? And so whenever I call, whenever I call them, like there's always a, hey, this is real, this is normal, right? For you know what what you're going through, right? Don't uh, you know this is not an anomaly. These are real challenges. Everyone deals with them. You know what I mean? So it's it's super super helpful to have, to your point, to have uh, you know those those early stage investors or partners or people that you can call on that that truly that truly get it, right? Vastly different than an angel investor that's just in it from a financial standpoint. That could be tough. That could be tough, and you know, I'm not sure if that. Yeah, it sounds like that. That you, uh, you've, you've been there, done that. It's, it's just it. You know, working with with folks that they're only looking at it from from a financial or an economics uh, economic framework. It just it can be can create its own own challenges. You know, when you've you've already sure. got enough to enough to deal with. But your other comment about just being close to, um, you know, surrounding yourselves with sort of generalists, right, in that early stage that can wear so many different hats, and then being close to kind of a. At you know universities, right, and network, network of people, and that sometimes that doesn't have to be um, physically located, right? It's just keeping in close contact with right, you know, academics, et cetera, that are in the space because 
I, I don't know, this has happened, you know, over and over again with, with me is that just by keeping in touch, you know, I'll get a random email from, you know, a PhD at an academic center that's like, hey, we just got some, some, some grant money, you know, just if you're working on any projects or whatever, we'd love to maybe incorporate Absolutely. advice or whatever. And so that, that sort of, it feels serendipitous, but that's just sort of a kind of the nature of being, you know, continuing to, to have, you know, close, being in close communication with, you know, some of those, uh, some of those centers. So yeah, really, really, really good stuff. I can, I can tell you've been, you've been around a lot of, a lot of early stage startups. The next topic I wanted to kind of chat with you is, is, is regulatory, right? You mentioned you just got breakthrough device designation at Pixium. You guys are, you guys are working on like some, some pretty sophisticated regulatory approaches, right? In the EU, in the US, et cetera. If you were to kind of coach up someone who's who's maybe not as early stage, right, but is beginning to really kind of formulate their pro, their, their reg approach, you know, how would you how would you you know uh, advise you know another med tech founder or CEO because it can be it can get complicated super fast, right? And so, how do you not you know get too overwhelmed, you know, as you as you approach this kind of gnarly gnarly topic? Yeah, there's I think there's probably five points here that I want to mention, right? And I don't know if it's in order of importance, but I'm just going to say them, right? Um. First of all, it always takes longer than you expect. Hmm. I've been doing this for 30 years now, and I don't think, and maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just unlucky or bad or, or not smart enough or whatever, but I don't think I've ever hit an anticipated regulatory timeline from the moment we set out. It always, always takes longer. Hmm. That, because so much is out of your control. That, yeah. That's the first point I want to mention. <laughs> the second thing, the second point I want to mention, I thought all gloom or doom, you, you know, people might after this quit the med device world. But second point is regulations are getting tougher, not easier. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, when I started years and years ago, it would take maybe 18 months and a couple of million bucks to bring a 510K product to market. You know what I mean? Like if you had to start from 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 paper, from napkin drawing all the way to market. Um, you know, today it takes a class three implantable device, which I'm dealing with, 10 to 12 years and probably 150 million to bring it to market. So that sounds like a drug. It sounds like a drug process, right? Applied to the, yeah. the tech. Yeah. That but that that's that's where we were heading and that's yeah. kind of ours. So regulations are getting tougher, not easier. Three, I'd say um, it always costs more than you anticipate. So this is, again, goes back to my previous point. Surround yourself with financial people that believe in your mission because it's going to require more than you think. That's the third point. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.